name is Justin Cluder, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about Max Ophels, the director that was the master of the tracking shot. He's known for tracking shots. He's known for creating a beautiful and glamorous mise-en-scene with your elegant costumes and your elegant sets. He's known for telling stories from a woman's point of view, and he's known for weaving melodramatic tales that aim right for the heart. And you know what, Justin? All these things are true. Let me start with a quote, though, from an article by John Halliday featured in Richard Round's Cinema, a Critical Dictionary. When Max Ophels died in a hospital in Hamburg in 1957, at the age of 55, the book beside the bed was Goethe's Faust. And just as Faust will probably remain beyond the reach of cinema, so the cinematic work of Max Ophels will probably remain beyond the reach of words and verbal criticism forever. Good night, everybody. That's been the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> Drat. And yet, and yet, that entry in that book runs, what, 2,000 words? So clearly, clearly people have written things about him. In fact, it seems to me in my research that Ophels is somebody who really united a lot of the big mid-century critics. You know, he was a great favorite of Andrew Saras, great, fa- great favorite of Pauline Kael. He's somebody who, when Andrew Saras was popularizing the auteur theory, Max Ophels became one of the central figures of that because Ophuls is one of those directors who can take a script that could have been filmed by anyone. You know, Michael Curtiz could have filmed one of these scripts and he imbues it with whole new layers of meaning through his visual style. So I'm going to quote a bit from Andrew Saris here in his book, The American Cinema. Saris said that he gave camera movement their finest hours in the history of cinema. He said, when Joan Fontaine mounts the staircase to her lover's apartment for the last time, O'Fool's camera slowly turns from its vantage point on a higher landing to record the definitive memory image of love. For a moment, we enter the privileged sanctuary of remembrance, and letter from an unknown woman reverberates forever after with its intimation of mortality. In a very poetic way, that's the kind of thing that a master of mise-en-scene, a master of the camera, can evoke with not very many raw materials in the script. But it should be pointed out that his camera moves are not super showy, cut them out and put them in a montage reel most of the time. It's a cumulative effect of all of these long tracking shots that follow people through interiors that really makes him who he is. Yeah, and you know, visually, he is a maximalist. I think it's fair to say he loves ornate and immaculately decorated spaces in a way that I can sometimes find a little overwhelming, if I'm being completely honest. I mean, you know, he he loves these incredibly ornate palace rooms, basically. Yeah, he loves rich people. <laughs> yeah, he, he loves rich people. And it's like, there are some filmmakers, I often find myself drawn to filmmakers who are more reserved and want you to lean into the screen and find the emotion yourself. Whereas Ophuls, really sweeps you along with these long tracking shots and these dense compositions. But his films are also about the kind of lack of love. His films are like about unrequited love. That's where he finds the drama in all of these stories that mostly feature women as the protagonists. And yeah, of his visual elegance, you know, Saris also wrote something that I think is quite beautiful. He says, 
If Ophuls seems inordinately devoted to Baroque opulence, his devotion was nevertheless strong-minded enough to contemplate an underlying human vanity tinged with sadness at its impending doom. The sensuous fabrics and surfaces of the Ophulsian world never completely obscure the grinning skeletons in the closet, and luxury never muffles tragedy. I mean, that's such beautiful writing, but it really conveys the fact that Yes, the surfaces are are so overwhelmingly beautiful, but there's a melancholy to these surfaces, too. That's kind of at the core of his greatness. No one is happy in Max O'Fool's cinema, and there's always misery right around the corner. I watched a documentary uh, that was part of the uh, cineast of our times that was made in France, and they interviewed like his son, Marcel O'Fool's, who went on to do a bunch of documentaries. And Marcel said, like, yeah, uh, my father didn't like to talk about what his movies were. He liked to talk about the surface features, but he almost seemed like, oh, you know, uh, La Ronde is about going in circles. It's right there in the title, La Ronde. <laughs> He's almost uninterested in digging deep down in someone like a Doug Sirk would about his movies. My friend Doug Sirk. <laughs> Douglas Sirk. Douglas Sirk. <laughs> Which is a way that you could read Ophuls' films as just like surface things, but they're not. There is a bunch of deep emotion there that when you consume it, even over the months-long period that me and Will did, gets exhausting because I'm like, I don't care about these rich people. Well, actually, I think this is an interesting thing to think about a little bit because I do feel when certain critics of Ophuls regard him as the greatest filmmaker. I mean, when you read Andrew Saris on him, he is convinced that Ophuls is like he is cinema. You know, this is a man who who embodies cinema and the art of cinema, the possibility of cinema more than anyone else. The movies do leave me a little colder than that. I mean, you know, some of them are, are absolutely wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Well, I mean, Saris was an André Bazin follower, right? And what did Bazin talk about as like the ultimate form of cinema was the long tracking shot. <laughs> the like camera stylo that would imbue emotion through these like long unbroken sequences that's what Bazin in some of the essays said he loved and I understand why Saris would extend it from there like what can cinema do that the stage can't editing the way that images kind of clash together in quick sequence but also give you a point of view that is always in motion and that's what Ophuls does in all of his motion pictures and it makes sense that he would kind of like look for this way to experiment to illustrate the stories that he tells on screen because he had worked on the stage for years before he finally came to the cinema. Yeah, actually, I was reading another review that Saris wrote, something he wrote in the 2000s about the earrings of Madame De, And he, you know, for a couple of paragraphs, he was talking about how all of his contemporaries, you know, David Thompson, Dave Kerr, Pauline Kael, they all regarded this movie as one of the greatest ever. And then he said, strangely enough, I've been having a hard time convincing my film students in my class of the greatness of this movie. And he said, it may part be a generation gap, partly the youthful suspicion of romanticism in some of its less cynical guises. But then he goes on to say, even among my contemporaries, I have been notorious over the years for my ecstatic to the point of orgasmic addiction to camera movement as an expression of the tyranny of time and the drama of human life. <laughs> I mean, if I was Sarah's student and he said that in class, I'd be rolling my eyes. He said, this predilection on my part may be something I picked up from the unified visual field theories of the late Andre Bazin. There you go. F- funnily enough, though, I mean, these movies, I mean, Bazin was really interested in cinema 
in the long take as capturing the real. You know, this is something that other visual art forms couldn't do, capture the real. But the Ophuls movies are also flagrantly artificial in a lot of ways. They they welcome being called melodramatic and corny and contrived. But Ophuls also loves the idea of time passing. Uh, somebody in that documentary I mentioned uh, says, if Ophuls had the opportunity of someone leaving a room, going to another room, going down some stairs to pick up like a letter and then go back the entire way to deliver it to the character, he would take it. Yes, you could stage it much more efficiently by having the letter just be right there, but he loved the idea of movement through space, not only as a dramatic device, but also as a way of showing off this entire world especially the like early 1900s, which he was deeply in love with, even though that the people that lived through that period were like, no, that was shit, man. It was awful during that time. Well, okay. I mean, in, in fairness to Ophuls, though, I mean, I think there is a push-pull. There's an attraction repulsion. I mean, he, he loves rich people. He loves the glamorous opulence of it, but he's constantly showing their lives to be sad and and failed and empty his interest in the surface is imbued with a great understanding that the surface is just the surface it is superficial when you're that rich there is a issue with expressing yourself in a honest way to the other rich people that surround you which forces the emotions to be bottled up and then kind of rot before any decisions can be made. That is kind of the main subject of a lot of his films, whether it be uh, The Earrings of Madame De or Letters from an Unknown Woman. It's like, just tell the person what you want. Ophuls has a really interesting career because he's a truly international filmmaker. He worked in Germany, France, the United States, and then returned again to France late in his career. And there is a remarkable, I think, uniformity of style in his mature work in all of those different cultural contexts. I mean, Letters from an Unknown Woman looks and feels like, you know, it's in the in the same spiritual family as the earrings of Madame De. Once he reached his mature style that we talked about, you know, up to now, he didn't really move away from it. And any time that someone would give him a project, that would be kind of, you know, to the side of it. He would still follow through with those long, luxurious camera moves. I mean, The Exile from 1947, which is like a Douglas Fairbanks Jr. swashbuckler, is fine, but the mix of Ophuls' like love of moving the camera elegantly through all of these scenarios does not mesh with the pulp kind of feel that a Douglas Fairbanks swordplay film needs. You mentioned Michael Curtiz, like, he was very good at that kind of stuff, while Max Ophuls feels a little bit lost in a picture like The Exile. Now, what do you think of The Reckless Moment? Because I think that's quite a good film. I think it's excellent, and I think that the kind of noir trappings of The Reckless Moment, which Ophuls tackled as well in Caught, are kind of perfect for his filmmaking style. And it's a little bit unfortunate that he didn't get to make more of those because that was basically his Hollywood swan song. So The Reckless Moment is a story about a mother who's worried about her daughter dating just a bad kid. And when that bad kid ends up dead, the mother finds herself having to clean it all up, watched over by James Mason, who is seemingly the puppet master behind this blackmail scheme. How do you like the scene where... 
like she Joan Bennett kind of hides the murder, which is this really long and protracted scene and has has a lot of that spirit of, you know, what Ophuls does so well with his camera. I mean, it's excellent. The way that he kind of squeezes suspense from that sequence, the process of it is something that Ophuls from the movies I've seen always loved. And within the context of the reckless moment, it works so well. And at the same time, you also have that a woman who suddenly starts to fall for a dark and mysterious man, a love that can actually never properly exist. And with that happening, James Mason and Joan Bennett, the blackmailer and the blackmailee, having to kind of, you know, they respect each other. And at the same time, there's this like suspensing of, yes, but there's a murder that needs to be uh, hidden as well, which works perfectly in sync with each other. It's incredible. I mean, that's a movie. It's a noir film in sort of an American middle class context, not a particularly glamorous context. But there's something about the spirit of it, something about the mood of it and the emotion of it that is not that far removed to me from, say, the earrings of Madame Deux from 1953. I think like something like The Reckless Moment works for me so well is that even though Joan Bennett lives in like a giant sprawling house with her family, there's scenes of her like worrying about money, like she cannot pay this blackmailer, no matter how she organizes her books. And I find that more sympathetic than, you know, in The Earrings of Madame Deux, uh, the woman, the whole point of it is that all this material gain doesn't actually mean anything if you don't have the emotional satisfaction that you need in life. And while it's all beautifully done, I don't like I wasn't weeping by the end of it by any stretch of the imagination. I guess I wasn't really weeping at the end of that one either. But and and I'm not quite sure, like, I don't know, it, one can't necessarily quantify certain things. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, like The Earrings of Madame Deux is a wonderful film and, and so beautiful. But I don't know you you read, you read what certain people have written about it as being just like, the most perfect object in cinema and like you you like you want to f- you want to feel that <laughs> it's it can be hard to <laughs> listen will if we all lived in giant houses where we didn't communicate with our spouses had good pensions that were building up Maybe, you know, we watch a film like The Earrings of Madame Dur and it's like, ah, yes, it gets me. Well, I'll tell the folks a little bit more about The Earrings of Madame Dur because it is, I think, Ophul's most popular film. It's set in Fantasiecle Venice. It follows a love quadrangle, I would say, between four people of, you know, in the upper echelon of society. The married couple at the center is a general, played by Charles Boyer, and his wife, played by Danielle Derrieux. Their marriage is comfortable and it is implied sexless. They live a very posh lifestyle, but Madame, the wife, uh, has gone deeply into debt. So when she's looking for something to sell to raise some money, she chooses the earrings that her husband gave her as a wedding present. And the earrings are this catalyzing object for the various mistruths and the back and forth that happens between four characters. So she hatches a plan that she's going to tell her husband that she lost the earrings, but she's actually going to just sell them. But the jeweler that she sells them to happens to be the man that her husband originally bought them from. And he tells her husband the whole story. So the husband buys them back, gives them as a present to his mistress in Constantinople. You know, no harm, no foul. Maybe a little bit of a private joke on his part too. But then the mistress also sells them because she needs to pay off some gambling debts, and she sells them to this baron, played by no less than Vittorio De Sica. That's right, the famous director of Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves. He ends up meeting Madame, falling in love, 
gives her the earrings and you know soon enough enough untruths have accumulated for all these characters that everyone basically starts to understand what the truth is i was very confused of why vittorio de sica's character suddenly turned against madame so suddenly he knew she was married yeah yeah that's interesting uh oh fools fans read it uh write in and uh tell us tell us why you think that was this movie actually this is a bit of a digression but it kind of gave me an additional clue to unlocking Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut because that movie was based on a novel from turn of the century Vienna as well by Arthur Schnitzler, if I'm pronouncing that name correctly, apologies. And I understand from reading up on this movie that, you know, in Vienna at that time, maybe in other countries at the time too, you know, sexual affairs in high society were in some ways quite normalized everyone everyone sort of everyone sort of did it yeah as long as they don't become aware of it or it's too uh flagrant it's fine yeah and you know i can can see how that would have informed kubrick's project of examining that milieu in a more modern context which has come to frown on that sort of thing and the earrings of madame dur builds like a lot of ophel's films to like a tragedy at the end of like ah these characters mostly the men can't come to terms with the emotions that they're dealing with so the only way that they can express themselves is something that results in death leaving even the madame of the title broken spiritually and even physically from all this turmoil that she's being put through one of the things that's interesting and meaningful about the film and this is why i think this movie is perhaps the best expression of a fool's project the film of his that is such a overwhelming full of overwhelmingly beautiful surfaces and it's about these earrings that are constantly like the the earrings are a metaphor the earrings are constantly accumulating meaning or losing meaning or whatever depending on whatever context you put them in and you know here's this this central character this madame who has this incredibly posh lifestyle that's so beautiful but it it doesn't mean anything ultimately all of these objects all of these objects are pretty but meaningless unless they have meaning you know to quote a great man will sloan hey let me be rich and then feel like that i think i'd get away with it a okay <laughs> yes I, I would like to try it out folks. i would say though i'm sure that uh, people would call me a dirty north american for saying that this is my favorite old fool's films that i've seen but letter from an unknown woman i found more moving than the earrings of madame de in a way that i didn't expect from reading the synopsis about like a woman that has an affair with a man that she's deeply in love with, but when she sees that he's kind of forgotten her, she raises his child without telling him, and an entire lifetime passes. I do find it quite powerful as well, like all of the melancholy of the missed opportunity or the the ship's passing in the night quality of that story. How much? Can, can I ask how much of you finding it more powerful has to do with the fact that it's enacted by American actors? I don't think that much because the earrings of Madame Dur is French. I speak French. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Did you watch Lola Montez, by the way? I did watch Lola Montez. And so I, Lola Montez left me a little bit cold, but when I read about the context of its creation, I was like, oh, maybe I like it a little bit more now. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar reaction, except that I'll also say that I found it very entertaining from beginning to end. There's, there's so much to look at. What's interesting about Lola Montez is it kind of came out of the fact that people were telling Ophuls, hey, you got to make something entertaining for the masses. And so his reaction was like, fine, I'll do it. It'll be the biggest movie you've ever seen. There's going to be parts that are going to be shot in cinemascope color. And it will also be a kind of satire of the entertainment that they're demanding of him. So Lola Montez was a real historical personage. 
She was known as the most scandalous woman in the world. Her roster of lovers included Franz Liszt, the composer, as well as King Ludwig of Bavaria. And when the film opens, she is in her later years, essentially, she's a carnival freak. She's the center of this circus attraction run by this ringmaster played by Peter Ustinov. She's doing tricks and he's like, oh, look at the most scandalous woman in the world. Line up and pay a dollar to kiss the hands that were kissed by Franz Liszt. You know, that kind of thing. The issue with the film is that like the bookends, even though that that like circus story pops out throughout to like lead us into the episodic life of Lola Montez, which was the original intention, but it was released all in black and white, all re-edited in uh, Max Ophel's lifetime. But now we can watch it the way it was originally intended. Is that that is so like garish and in your face. And then you go to the like real flashbacks and they're also garish and in your face because that's Ophel's style. So I like this movie overall. I mean, it's it's a uh, very entertaining piece of storytelling. Visually, it is unbelievable. I think the central character is a problem. The central character is a cipher in this film. I know that there are certain critics who blame Martine Carroll, who plays Lola Montez, and this is a sort of classic situation of, like, she was a star name, and you had to have a star name to get the whopping $1.5 million budget to make this film. (laughs) And it could be an argument that the fact that she was a star and is a little bit vapid was the whole point of Max Ophel's putting this together, but then it there's no emotional, like, center to the film. It's so strange because he's so good in a lot of these movies of telling a story from a woman's point of view getting into the central female character's head and I don't feel like he gets into Lola Montez's head it feels like it's all of these situations that kind of happen to her and perhaps that's the intent but it leaves me a bit cold yeah you don't get any motivation in the sense of like oh I can see you know whether it be societal structures or the way that she grew up while these decisions and these you know dramatic events are happening and yeah by the end like I can see like on paper it makes sense where it ends up but it doesn't have the punch I was hoping it was going to again this was Ophel's doing this big gigantic thing in an attempt to finally, you know, silence the critics who want big, gigantic things from him. Unfortunately, it was also the last movie that he ever made. I think for, when a movie like this really works, you love the central character. I don't think you ever quite love Lola Montez. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is. I don't think I don't think even O'Fools fully understands why she's doing these things and sympathizes or, or has quite the same push-pull attraction repulsion with her life as he does certain other characters. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but uh, that's what I think it is. No, I agree. There's just, there isn't that emotional center that a story like this needs, especially when it's presented in a way which is, look at this circus. Isn't this wild? This woman, isn't it surreal? And then you see the adventure she has and you're like, yeah, those are pretty wild. So Max Ophel's more than just uh, tracking shots, Will. Will a new generation take up the mantle of loving the Max and they'll be like jizzing all over <laughs> I was orgasmic in the way the camera moved and the emotions that were presented. You see, that's the kind of thing that Andrew Saris won't tell you. He'll only imply it, but he will not talk about ejaculate. <laughs> will a new generation? Yes, I th- yes, I think they will. For, I, first of all, I think Max Ophuls is probably like, I don't know, just judging by the fact that these movies are always, always seem to be popular on the Criterion channel, like, you know... Things come in and out of style. Certain kinds of emotional storytelling come in and out of style. I know that Paul Thomas Anderson helped make O'Fools accessible to a whole new generation by, 
using him as an inspiration for Phantom Thread, and that led that helped lead to a sort of re- further resurgence of interest in O Fools. I think there's always something there, and you know, depending on your mood, depending on where you are in life, depending on the sort of things you're looking for, uh, he's right there. I look forward to being rich, living in a giant empty mansion, myself empty of emotion, watching Max Ophul films, tears streaming down my cheeks, being like, this guy gets me. Just need a few more Patreon subscribers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Join us at patreon.com slash. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Tony Marshall. And he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, the cinema I work at is soon getting The Souvenir Part 2, the sequel to a film I despise. I went in knowing it was by an acclaimed director whose work I had not seen and walked out going, I guess Britain doesn't deserve its own film industry. Oh boy, harsh words. Come on, it can't be that bad. I like The Souvenir. Only for it to win top awards at the film festival I attended and be acclaimed by film critics like David Sims, host of my second favorite and your rival podcast, Blank Check. Wait, do we have a rival? Rivalry was blank check. Yeah, you're right. You know what? We should. I'm starting it now. The rivalry begins now. Don't listen to our Elaine May episode. I don't want those kind of replies. Oh, holy shit. Our Elaine May episode is even worse than theirs. Please. Do you feel insane when you see stuff you hate get praised? Do you have ways of justifying feeling dumber or out of touch? And is there a film you truly thought would be despised, but was critical or awards darling. P.S. I was the guy who said Mark Cousins is just a fact in my city. He is literally just running around with his camera filming stuff for documentaries. This is what I hope for Justin one day, even though it means he'll be too famous (laughs) to make the best film podcast anymore. I'll never be too famous for that. Will be funny to hear Will try and force others to talk about 70, 70s poor. <laughs> um, so to the question, uh, you know, honestly, I don't really sweat it if there's an awards contender or an acclaimed movie that doesn't register with me. I don't have time anymore to be like, how dare this film be popular? Hey, Will, you hear about the Eternals? Yeah, I, I don't I don't care about the Eternals. I mean, I think there was maybe a time when I would have cared more. I think there have been a lot of movies over the years that have been acclaimed in some circles that the two of us haven't really liked for whatever reason and you know that's just that's just all part of being an individual with your own taste and your own life experiences i think i would be more bothered if it was like oh no i can't believe this film critic who i usually agree with he loves this movie what am i missing i don't know that that very rarely happens and when it does i'm like eh I guess maybe they saw something in it that I didn't. That's all. I, I mean, sometimes I'm interested in that. Sometimes I'm interested if a, if a critic I like, you know, likes something that, that I don't. I suppose sometimes I'm concerned if I see a movie that I think represents, like, things that are bad in society as a whole. Yeah, like Clint Eastwood's films, right? The the world should be much more like Clint Eastwood's films, if you ask me, folks. Uh, just kidding. Like, uh, uh, what's an example? Well, I mean, you mentioned The Eternals, and I guess I guess I am concerned about certain of the politics in certain of the Marvel movies. But, but I mean, also, now that I think of it, the problem is not Marvel, ultimately. The problem is, like, the system that produces it, so... Well, I mean, The Eternals, the whole point of it is, is these neoliberal people realize that they've been working for the wrong person the entire time, and that they're actually the bad guys. But the movie's really boring, and I would not recommend it, so, hey! Also, I'm sure the movie is just vague enough on all that stuff that it... (laughs) Oh, yeah, you could read it whichever way that you wanted. If you dislike something that other people like, don't sweat it. And vice versa, too. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, if they don't enjoy something you love, it's just their loss. 
you just feel a little bit bad for them don't get angry you won't convince them either because that's all they want they just want to fight with somebody here's what you do you start a podcast hoping against hope to persuade more people to get in line with your taste yeah exactly or just introduce them to other stuff that uh, they would have never wanted to check out so thank you very much for that letter and our next letter is from noah taylor and he goes hey justin and will Congrats on your Leonard Moulton interview. It was a great to listen to right after hearing you praise his book on your previous episode. I was wondering if you had any opinions on any of the other movie guides. I myself was always loyal to Mick Martin and Marsha Porters. Are you familiar with that one, Will? Uh, yes, I am. I used to have that guide. I used to read it a lot. I don't think I've ever... Uh, you know what? I'm going to look it up. I've probably seen it. It was basically just... It was like an exact clone. Oh, of, yeah. The one that's like DVD and video. It was a clone of the Moulton guide, basically. It was the same kind of book the same format, the same sorts of reviews. I mean, yes, I used to, you know, when I was a really little kid, like when I was like eight years old, I had that book. I had the Malton book. I had the uh, Hallowell's movie guide. And and of course, the video hound. Who could forget the canine film critic, the video hound. And certain of those books, like to me, that, that was what film criticism was when I was a little kid. It's like, oh yeah, you've got this book that has a review that says whether it's good or whether it's bad. Yeah, the person writing this book wouldn't be allowed to write it if their opinion was wrong. I always liked the Leonard Malton guide the most, I think, because first of all, Leonard Malton's face was on the cover. <laughs> How could you not trust that smile? Yeah, and there was that accountability. It was like, it was like ultimately, you know, you don't know who the video hound is. You don't know the sweatshops full of poorly paid film reviewers that are grinding out, you know, 20 word capsules the rate of like 50 a day for 10 cents an hour but you know with the malton guide and of course he's probably only written like half the reviews in the malton guide but you know ultimately the buck stopped there and ultimately i think a certain a certain taste a certain coherent taste emerged in that book and i have to say that the video hound as i said before cuffless and trash picks i read that book cover to cover even though that it is weird that there was not a critical person that i could ascribe all of these tastes to as opposed to thomas weisner and his asian cult cinema book where he was completely wrong on almost everything some of the reviews he just made up because he didn't see the movie yeah that's right video hound had all of those like spin-off guides cult flicks and trash picks there was one called video hound dragon that was about asian movies oh i have that one there was one about like black and white movies i think there was one about a direct-to-video movies video hounds video premieres and some of those books were kind of interesting like you could learn something from those books those books are less interesting than some to me now because they they don't have that personality and they all seem an attempt to like codify the genre and to limit the genre in a way do you know what i mean it's like these are the cult movies it's brazil it's rocky horror picture show oh they didn't like brazil and cult flicks and trash picks too depressing so the letter continues when i worked at bay street video there was always a video hounds massive golden movie retriever on hand for customers which they still make i believe there were one or two others for a while as well and i just have to say here that i have seen that video hound uh, movie retriever and they also have the newest edition of letter Maltons, the last one that was published in 2015 uh, at Bay Street off on the side when you walk in. And I once asked Mark Hansen, the product manager and co-host of the Bay Street Video Podcast, do people still read this? And he said, every day. Obviously, there are elderly people who clearly do not know how to use the internet. Why else would they be renting movies in a store? So yeah, there's still an audience out there. They have not quite disappeared yet. By the way, another reason why I like Malton more than the Video Hound is because his book was a more sensible size. Yes, that Video Hound book is impossible to read. Also, the Video Hound book has like 
25 indexes where it's like by cinematographer, by writer, by genre, by subgenre. And maybe that was kind of cool before the internet, but sorry, I don't need that anymore. And it's just a huge fucking thing that's like the size of Don Quixote that you have to pull off the shelf and like hurt yourself doing it. But Will, how many bones will you know what movies have? I guess I won't know. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for the letter, Noah. And remember, people, if you live in Toronto, visit the Bay Street Video Store. They still have the Video Hound. Maybe they're one of the five people who still buy it. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, we're talking about a cinematic maximalist on par with Max O'Fools. That's right. We're talking about John Liu and his and and his lost, his lost kung fu film, New York York Ninja. We'll sweat it through that one. And yeah, we're talking about New York Ninja, recently uh, released by Vinegar Syndrome and also put together by Vinegar Syndrome. That's right. This was a lost movie, a lost and uncompleted movie that was recently finished. New York Ninja. Is this the new Miami connection, folks? Well, you'll have to listen to the Patreon episode at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club to find out. Will, me going, Made me think we got to do a Tim Allen episode. Uh, we already did the Santa Claus. <laughs> no. Jungle to Jungle. Oh. Big Trouble. There's so much there. Oh, my God. I'm feeling, in- Joe somebody? I'm feeling indigestion hearing that. I feel a marathon coming on. The thought of watching all those movies is like pushing a brick through my bowels. <laughs> oh. You know what? If I'm feeling that way, that means it's probably a good idea and we should do oh, it. Oh, you will kill me. The like will come on to start recording. It should be a gunshot. Here's the thing. We did an earnest marathon for this podcast. And in those movies, at least you've got Jim Varney. At least you've got like a fun, cool guy like that. But Tim Allen, I mean, oh my God. But we grew to hate Ernest by the end of that earnest marathon. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we'll grow to love Tim Allen. I would rather watch the first half of an Ernest marathon than any Tim Allen movie, but like the second half of the Ernest marathon, maybe I would be ready for the, for the gentler shenanigans of Tim, Tim Allen's filmography would be broken up by David Mamet's red belt. Yeah. I mean, even that's not all that great. Oh man. He started a film called three geezers in 2013. Wait, what, what happened to him? Wasn't he like a pretty big star for a while? When he's still a big star. Cause he has his show last man standing, where is the only one keeping up male values? Yes. Yes. Well, we should marathon that entire show. 194 episodes all of them the same (laughs) every single one so next week will what are we doing next week we are talking about the greatest auteur of them all no just kidding folks we're talking about alan smithy what alan smithy he has quite a varied film career doesn't he justin who is alan smithy the people know but tell them anyway who is he? alan smithy is not a person he was an official pseudonym used by film directors who wanted to disown a project coined in 1968 and it was formally discontinued in 2000 because if you use an alan smithy pseudonym you will not get paid a cent of residuals well the Directors Guild implemented the pseudonym for movies where the directors were able to prove that the movie had been taken away from them and mutilated to the point where it didn't reflect their vision anymore. You couldn't just use it for like a bad movie. It had to be a movie that was not your vision. Now, it wasn't used all that often really because like there were a lot of there were a lot of career related reasons why directors would not want to resort to that. However, it was used for a lot of movies still. I'm very surprised that I'm reading here uh, the Wikipedia entry and it says that on a film a second assistant director took the Alan Smithy 
credit. Do you know what that movie could be? Maybe perhaps a movie that had a big accident? Uh, yes, I do know. It was Twilight Zone, the movie. And that guy, that guy never worked again. No way. Maybe he worked again once, but he didn't work. A lot. His career was destroyed. John Landis, though, kept working. All right. Yeah. Uh, Alan Smithy. Alan Smithy, we're going to talk about at least two movies. We're going to be talking about the Dennis Hopper film Catch Fire, starring Jodie Foster, as well as the movie that essentially signaled the end of the Smithy era, a movie that brought the Smithy name to the forefront and made the name so well known that the Directors Guild essentially had to discontinue the name. And that is an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, a film about the Smithy phenomenon for which the original director, Arthur Hiller, resorted to using the smithy name i mean how can this movie be bad though it's written by joe esterhouse it stars ryan o'neill coolio chuck d eric idol sylvester stallone Whoopi goldberg and jackie Chan. well you had me at ryan o'neill uh justin i just want to let you in on a secret i've seen an alan smithy film oh i know you've seen an alan smithy film. uh yeah i've seen burn hollywood burn and i mean i saw it probably in like 2008 and it was Horrible. By the way, you you missed uh, one of the biggest names in the cast. Have you ever heard of an actor by the name of Harvey Weinstein? Oh, boy. So anyway, folks, that's coming up next week. We might watch another movie, too. Who knows? Until then, the balcony is closed. I'm, I got to stop saying that every episode. <laughs> My name's been Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Ho, ho, ho. It's me, Santa Claus, again. None of that Grinch business. It's the holiday season, so it's all about smiles and presents. And thanking our patron subscribers. Ho, 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 ho. Who include Patrick Carroll, Adelie Skylar Larkin, Danny Boy, Frida Granados, Peter McGon, Michael Carrington, Domenico Leblugio, Julian Kopkus, and ho, ho, no, what are you doing? Hey, it's me, the Grinch. Again, I think this is my voice. It may have changed from the last episode. No more Santa Claus. It's all Grinch time, 24-7. All right, let's thank some more Patreon subscribers who include Simon Barrett, Adam Trainer, what a guy, Felix Dombinsky, yeah, Chrono Clone, Y2K Podcast, Elliot Sharon, and Demian. No more Santa Claus. It's all about the Grinch now. And oh, oh, oh this means war. Go on Apple Podcast and oh, God, his big hands around my neck. Give the important Cinema Club a review. would be very much appreciated. Oh, 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 yes. Yes, it'd be very much appreciated. <laughs> and we now return you uh, to your regular scheduled programming. So the other day I was watching Enemy of the State on TV with my dad. And I'd never seen it before, by the way. The Tony Scott film starring Will Smith, Enemy of the State. Everyone remembers that. Uh, and I, we were watching it on AMC. Folks, I'm going to do just an, just an old complaint. A complaint that is boring probably to most people too many commercials right that's exactly it you know it was actually an amazing thing i was actually starting to enjoy it by the end because you know you get about four minutes of movie and then you get four minutes of commercial and then four minutes like it was actually just about that proportion now this is not the first experience i've had like that in recent months about two months ago my dad and i also together watched on amc grand torino with clint eastwood that is also a two-hour movie that was stretched into like a three and a half hour time slot on AMC. Absolutely brutal. 
theoretically, if I wanted to, I'm watching these movies on the same TV where I have all my apps, you know, I could actually for $4 more order Enemy of the State, watch it completely commercial free without even leaving the couch, folks. Because back in the day, back in the day, if you wanted to do that, you would have to go all the way to a video store. That was the competition. And yet, I never did that. We just kept watching these movies. Now, why is that, Justin? Why is that? There's a novel factor, I think, for you. Because this is not how you usually experience movies. And you did not hit the point between, oh, this is novel, too. This is annoying. And then beyond, which is, I guess this is just the way it is. Which is, I feel like most of our parents are like that. They're like, this is how it always was? Why would I watch commercials? Every time I watch something with commercials, which I believe happens only maybe once or twice a year when I watch, like, the Oscars, I'm always like, oh, my God, it's the same commercial again? What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How can there just be, like, five commercials? I just cannot believe it. If, if it was me, I would have probably gotten up and been like, we can watch it some other way. I think that you were more just mesmerized by the entire experience. Also, I think... There's a certain novelty to watching a movie on TV. Okay, it's not novel at all, but like there's a certain there's a certain special quality to it. It's like I could listen to my favorite songs anytime I wanted to, but if you're in the car and it comes on the car radio, that's better than winning the lottery. Yeah, but imagine that favorite song then being interrupted by a guy who sold you cars or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that would be pre- that would be pretty horrible. I mean, the thing about movies as opposed to songs is like you at least do get like four or five minutes of Enemy of the State there to like. You keep getting immersed and then you keep getting pulled out. But also, Enemy of the State is a movie that I probably would not have sought out. But and like I'm watching it and I'm like, well, I'm only watching this because it's the only thing on TV, which makes it special. That focuses my attention. It's like, okay, well, it's this, it's this or it's a rerun of Friends. Wait, it focuses your attention as you look down at your phone to see what's going on on Twitter? Yeah, well, there's a lot of that going on, too. If then I made the leap to go to some app to watch it like to pay $5 to watch it on YouTube, well, then my mind would start to think, well, I could watch, I could watch literally any movie. Like, if you could watch anything, why don't you just watch the best thing that you know is good? Because you don't want to. You don't want have to have to dedicate yourself emotionally and your attention to something that, like, you know, oh, this is good. I know I need to experience it the correct way. You're not feeling good enough for the correct way. That's why you want to watch Enemy of the State on television with commercials. Because it is completely unchallenging. You had to make no decision other than changing the channel to AMC. Yeah, it's unchallenging. But I'm also watching something I wouldn't have watched otherwise. And so there's there's that kind of special quality to it. I've always been interested in getting something like Turner Classic Movies. Because I do like the idea of someone, like, programming something for me that I otherwise wouldn't watch but eh, I can't really get it without buying a cable package and that ain't happening. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to change my lifestyle anytime soon. What's funny is that uh, in France, Bertin Tavernier talks about in one of his journals that they wanted to impose commercials on movies that were going to be played and he was furious. I think there was like protests against it. That just goes to show North America and they're just sheeple. They're like, yeah, whatever, give it to us however you want to present to us. We won't fight for it. Yeah, France, that's a country that that respects art and respects artists. And the politics are completely correct let me take a big sip of water while i read about what's going on down there oh no as opposed to over here where the politics are 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 much better (laughs) yeah as opposed to i mean here's the thing um i could criticize any politics because they're all bad like that are happening in the world right now that's right folks we're equal opportunity offenders on this podcast we're like matt and trey you've been listening to michael and us oh yeah we're libertarians you mean (laughs) 